0: Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only.
1: Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. This is The Rich
0: Eisen
1: Show. Hour number three of The Rich Eisen Show is on the air. 844-204-RICH, number to dial. We are about to have a dynamite pop culture conversation uh, with an executive producer, showrunner, and writer of some of the shows that I love and we've all loved, Sopranos and... Then, of course, uh, Boardwalk Empire. Uh, the man wrote the script for Wolf of Wall Street and now is the executive producer and showrunner of the show Tulsa King. We had Andrea Savage on studio just a couple of days ago to talk about the show. Sliced Alone a couple of weeks ago to talk about Tulsa King. Terrence Winter is in our green room right now, and we're excited to have him come out here. Go. Uh, he's going to bring a bucket of water to cool down Chris Brockman, who um, uh, needs one of those candy bars right now. Yeah. Uh, look, I I, uh, I I would have felt again the same way if Aaron Judge uh, went to the Yankees as he said and the reporting said he did. Said, hey, I've got more money on the table elsewhere, but I want to stay a Yankee. M- match this number, and I'm I'm staying. And it looks like again, Hal Steinbrenner said, all right, one more year, forty more million, done. We got it. And, and judges and this is, back. And this is I don't two know. two players
0: I, in a row now though for us. This I don't is know. two if,
1: players in a row. Which is bets so. and bets and uh you know. and bogarts. But again, I don't I don't know. I mean, you even yourself said that an eleven year contract to a twenty nine year old guy right now is not something you'd be you'd be up for doing. Yeah, but
0: yeah, totally irresponsible. But if it's about money, you can give him more on the average per year and still give him six it. or seven years and yeah, be I done know. with
1: it. I know. I know. So Red Sox fans are fuming. Um you know, out of respect to you, uh I will leave it at that, Chris, because... uh Hey, you
0: can drink in my tears. It's totally fine. Um I get it. I would have done the same for if if, 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 if the situation if, was reversed. If Judge left? Yeah, absolutely.
1: See, and that's why I don't think you can quit the Red Sox. You could still hate the Yankees. You could just root for the Padres. Right? Right. I can totally do that. Right. You could take Cage to see Mookie Betts here and take Cage down the... the, down the uh, down the four hundred five to see. He's not going to quit them, man. He said he was going to quit him. If, you know how many Devers, times, if Rich, they,
2: I've since nineteen ninety six, I said I'm going to quit the Cowboys. Like uh, on did, an average, well, which, when
1: did you ever say you're going to quit the Dallas Cowboys? Oh, well, probably on Quincy an Carter almost broke it. What almost broke you? Because well, Xander Bogart's clearly is almost breaking. Well, the, fa- the funny Brooklyn. thing is, you know,
2: on Facebook you don't know this because you don't go on Facebook, but they do a thing where they give you on this day and you get to see all the old posts. Yes throughout time on that particular day. And I I was telling these guys, during football season, my angry Tony Romo Facebook posts (laughs) are amazing. Really?
1: Romo almost broke you, huh?
2: Oh, yeah. There there was just one from yesterday that says, Tony Romo will not be on my Christmas card list. I don't know what he did that week 14 years ago to upset me. but We can look it up.
1: (laughs) We can look it up. So, yeah,
2: I mean, I I always say I'm not lately. I've never... I've never said i got going to quit I've the i wanted Jets. to quit the Mets before, but you say it, but you don't mean it. Didn't, I mean it. Well, didn't Nick Turturro say if Judge wasn't coming back, he was quitting the Yankees? Yeah. He did. Hell
0: yeah. And, so. then,
2: and then Chris asked him, where are you going to go? I did.
0: So that's what we say to you. he, he said, nowhere. He said, nowhere.
1: <laughs> nowhere. I said, I'm
0: going to San Diego. <laughs> are you, though? <low? laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> He's going to be back in.
0: They might not day. want you, Brock. Rich, here's here's one thing I know about
2: Chris is everyone like he loves the Patriots, which he does. That dude loves the Red Sox. And that's why I appreciate this passion, because he does. He loves the Red Sox more than he loves anything. Apparently awesome. it
0: happened at 9.30 at night, but I was already in bed, and I didn't see any of the texts. So I saw it this morning. That's how I woke up. So I woke up pissed.
1: And then he ended <laughs> oh, you, the didn't see any, you didn't see any of the Bogarts last night, <laughs> no, huh? No, I didn't. I woke I saw up this like morning. this. Hey,
0: that yeah. is yeah. the traffic.
1: Yeah. I woke so, up and then like I had this. to
0: sit two hours in traffic. Hey, there was like 13 on accidents. Yeah, I know. Four or five the was 405
1: was bad. <laughs> four five's almost. Everybody's, everybody's yeah. trying to go get down to San Diego to buy season tickets. <laughs> wow.
3: Wow.
0: Mike, go in, on with, go in with me. Let's do it. Let's go right now.
1: Let's go. Dennis in Long Beach, in California. Let's take Dennis's phone call. Dennis, be careful. Tread lightly to use the, uh, the Breaking Bad phrase. What's well, what up, Dennis? Smoke, Dennis?
3: I appreciate it. I just responded to Brockman on Twitter. Um, So I'm a lifelong Phillies fan, 1978 years old when I found Major League Baseball. I've been through so many ups. Well, not so many ups, so many downs, and basically (laughs) three or four ups. And baseball is a lifelong relationship with your team. It's a long game. It's a long season. and it's You've got – I mean, Denny Doyle was my favorite player, and he went (laughs) to what? The Red Sox? Did that break my heart? Yes. Somebody else comes back in. Baseball's changed. It's the money game. The, the minor league players are mostly chips on the table. And, and what I'd asked Brockman uh, on Twitter was, hey, if you have a rough patch with your wife, you're going to leave her or are you going to stick with her and wait for the good times to come again? Because they will. So the millennials. Is it about money with
1: people my people wife? I mean, <laughs> Did she pay me $280 million? Now they
3: do. It's crazy. I mean, you got to stick with them.
1: All right, Dennis. Thank you. There you go. Dennis
0: is and, telling and you don't go look, anywhere. Dennis, and as I wrote back to you, nice pig avatar, why be a fan of something that does not respect my fanhood?
1: Well, they 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 would count. I would say that they they have a plan. and they, They'll find it. I don't know yeah, who it is. I don't yeah. who's playing well, stuff. Yeah, what's the
0: plan? They clearly don't have a plan because if it's not about if it if it, it's about money, then why'd you pay Trevor Story last year? Although I do remember, so you have the money.
1: I I, I, I do remember. So you don't have a plan. Well, I guess you'll put him at short. They were sticking him at second last year. They'll put him at short. They don't it'll have be a they and, don't, don't have a plan. It'll be, it'll be Devers and Story, as you know. Story was the player of the month of May. He was Mister May. Speaking of which, I remember when Reggie Jackson left the Yankees, I cried myself to sleep that night. And I thought to myself, I will never feel this way about a baseball player ever again. And then Donald Arthur Mattingly came along in a couple of years after that. Then the Yankees went through this whole period where they couldn't win a damn thing. And then comes along a, a a retread manager who turned out to be the greatest and is now in the Hall of Fame in Joe Torre. You know, it's, it, it is, it is uh, a fickle beast. It is a fickle beast. I think that Devers isn't going anywhere. They will do the right thing by him and you and the fan base when that happens. It's going to happen. But I do remember when Reggie Jackson left, I remember crying myself to sleep when they lost the World Series to the Dodgers. And then because Winfield was named Mr. May by Steinbrenner. And the number of times that George did stuff that caused me to say, I, will, I can't root for this team anymore but I never did. I never left him in the same way that Dolan caused me to go. And even with that, even with the Dolan wormhole, even with my s- such hatred for him, I found myself watching the Knicks last night and my childhood memories of the garden and hearing the noises and the sounds and the, the way the organ plays and the three point goal, the whole thing of the, the, the garden experience. It started coming back to me and coming back to me and yeah. coming back to me and just seeing Julius Randle with his smile. Like he's such, he's infectious. He's an infectious player, and I love watching him play. And then he had an incredible night last night uh, against the Atlanta Hawks, and at a timeout, he's on the bench, and it looked like Dolan went up to him and got an autograph or somebody from him. It looked like he walked up to him and handed him something because Randall looked down, and it looked like he was signing something, and he gave Dolan a wink. And I hated that moment again. I'm like, just sit down. And that's and the problem with nostalgia, down. Rich. It, it clouds
0: down. your judgment on what's actually happening, happening in right. Front of I you.
1: know. But what's happening in front of me is 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 a fandom that I just sometimes I still even with my sincere because no matter how you feel about the ownership group for the Boston Red Sox, I hate them. Okay. <laughs> no matter how badly they aren't even remotely approaching Dolan because the Knicks still haven't won a championship, still haven't won a why, championship since I was a child. But that's why it's not and, the same. And he, he took the administration of Chekis and, and that was running the Knicks back in the day with Riley and, you know, putting. if it wasn't for Jordan, okay, if it wasn't for Jordan and then if it wasn't for Hakeem Olajuwon, that's a lot of ifs and buts. It's many, I'm spreading candies and nuts around here. That he took that and it's gone in a totally different direction at least you got your championships. And it was the ownership group that, that helped put this thing together. It was. And now okay. they've
0: decided to go the opposite direction. Now, well, look, I get it. The, the Red Sox were losers for 80 years, and that's totally fine. But in the last 20, they're not. They're the most winningest team in I major know, in and this is the so, same ownership and group. Now so. but, but now we're starting to behave like we are the losers. We're not. What are you doing? We were a few outs away from right. the World Series two years ago and four years removed from arguably the greatest season in major league history but even so, with, like what is happening
1: even with my sincere distaste for James Dolan I was watching the Knicks last night and again you know Brunson and seeing his dad on the staff I as you know I like Thibodeau. we're different I'm
0: way more spiteful no like, no and I'm hateful. watching it no, I'm
1: just watching it I'm hearing the garden noises and I'm feeling nostalgic for my youth and watching this team and like I said, Randall is one, somebody you can really root for. Like his wife was there. He gave her a kiss after the game. Like it's some, there, there's enough there. And then I saw that guy, that schmecky schmeck of an owner who put, who put Oakley in jail overnight one time and still can't get past it. And I saw him come up from his seat and he asked, I guess, maybe he's doing it for a kid. I don't know. It could be very nice what he was trying to do. But even then it just snapped me back in. Like, oh, that's right. That's why I hate this team. That guy, but it's tough. That said, I would, I, I will be very honest with you. I hope Devers leaves and they break you. I hope he leaves and they break you because I, I am done having that guy with his big ass chaw <laughs> come up to the plate and rake the Yankees over the coals as he rakes. I'm done with it. And and you know, uh, Bogert's, You know, I know Bowie he's too man. It's awesome. I I I am uh, I if, for me. Um, they, they, uh, they. Uh, you know, Bogarts wasn't the toughest out on that team. No. Toughest out is still there playing third base.
0: But he's one of their toughest players. He's, he's one of the was, toughest guy outs guy in Major League
1: Baseball. You no. got the, you got the guy. But uh, other than that, we still have our guy.
3: Chris accidentally called me on the way here. <laughs> This is, I have a message. <laughs>
1: oh, Mike, it's so stupid. That's so stupid. Mike,
3: you're such a loser. <laughs>
1: no, I'm not. It's, yeah, so, stupid. it's so stupid. <laughs> it's so stupid. Mike, that's stupid. Mike, so that's right, stupid. All right, let's take a break right here. <laughs> no, let's, let's take 20-0. a break right here. Uh, Terrence Winner is coming out here on the Rich Eisen Show. 844-204-RICH is the number to dial here on the program. Cannot wait to talk Tulsa King and so much more with this man coming up next just saw a great clip from Tulsa King starring Sylvester Stallone who was on a couple weeks ago. We just said goodbye a couple days ago to Andrea Savage. We love this show and Terrence Winter, the showrunner of the program uh, is here on. Uh, so uh, obviously Taylor Sheridan is yeah. the Yellowstone man of the moment in television. Sure. He reached out to you and said let's get let, uh, this idea Tulsa King? Yeah uh, we share the same agent
4: uh, and about I guess a year and a half ago my agent called me and said hey I have an interesting situation. Uh, Taylor Sheridan wrote a pilot like over for a weekend apparently mm-hmm. uh told me the premise you know older guy you know uh, goes out to kansas city sent out the kansas city mobster uh sylvester stallone is attached taylor suggested you be to take this over because he can't possibly do it is this something you'd be interested in i said well taylor Sheridan, the Stallone let me think about it for a second i was like <laughs>
0: oh yeah said,
4: absolutely yeah when do i start he's like right. great i'm gonna put you on a, a zoom with taylor we Zoomed, we talked, I read the pilot, I thought it was great. I said, yeah, you know, I do have a couple of ideas. I pitched him what they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, great, go take it, run with it, it's your baby, I have visitation rights, and see you later. And I went off and did it. And right. I li- actually only met Taylor one time. Uh, once in the Zoom and once in person a week before we started shooting. And that was it, and we- And then off you, know, you go. Yeah, he just, you know, we went out, he took me to dinner, and it was like, good luck, and we left. You know, and off you go to Oklahoma. Here we go. Yeah, and I was literally you- on my way to Oklahoma, when I stopped in Arizona to meet him. And then continued on to oklahoma to shoot the show
1: so what what uh what do you think works for you when you're writing something about a mobster who's got a dark side but also a humorous side where where there's a and, and it's amazing that you also work with scorsese for wolf of wall street because that seems to be always uh, on the edge of violence, darkness, right. but humor comedy, at the same yeah. time, you know? I, yeah.
4: I, 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 well, you know, these people are so, and the world is so inherently absurd that it's. if you just tell it straight, it's, yeah. it, it, it veers toward comedy. You don't have to write jokes, you know? I mean, it's just the the circumstances they find themselves in. And a lot of these guys, true, a lot of mob guys are actually really funny people. Mm-hmm. Not when you owe them money. They're much less funny. Very much so, correct. But they're great storytellers. They're They're hilarious. Uh, and again, I think the, the inherent absurdity of, of what it is they do and how mm-hmm. they live, it, it, you know, just lends itself to comedy. Also, just taking somebody like Sly's character and putting them in, in human situations is so it feels so odd that you, you can't help but laugh. I always tell this story. I remember we, we were at a premiere of The Sopranos and there was a scene where Tony is sitting at the kitchen counter eating cereal and reading the box of cereal, just reading the back of the box of cereal. The audience howled. It's so human, but you to see a mob boss sitting reading a box of tricks is just funny, <laughs> right? You know, and you don't have to make it funnier than it is. It's just is is there, you know. So it's just sort of, and I've always gravitated toward toward this stuff and people who live outside the lines. It's just always been interesting to me and and uh, something I, I guess I do I do well. Uh, but you know, it's just you know I think the other thing too is if you take anybody, even if they're a bad person, and depict them in all the colors of human behavior, you're going to find moments of relatability and, you know, maybe not, you know, likability, but at least understanding. You know, Tony loves his daughter. You know, Dwight's you know been alienated from his family and is out and you know he's been screwed over by the people he thought you know he could depend on and mm-hmm. you know you relate and you start to slowly understand and, and almost forgive them for a lot of the bad behavior
1: Terrence Winter, the uh, emmy award winning many times over producer writer now executive producer and showrunner of tulsa king here on the rich eisen show and again paramount plus is its home new episodes drop weekly on sundays let's dive into the sopranos a little bit here if you don't mind how'd you get first hooked up with david chase and all of that I uh, same
4: My agent at the time sent me, said, I'm going to send you a videotape, I'm dating myself, of a show called The Sopranos. I want you to watch it. And I said, you know, I, I don't know anything about opera, right? And he's like, just watch it. Uh, that
1: was I, your first response, yeah, huh? Was, yeah, it, was it not yet on? No, it was not, it was not on, on the air
4: yet. It was a show HBO was doing. It was still, uh, they were still uh, shooting it. Uh, I watched it, and I don't even think I got through the entire pilot, and I was physically trembling. I called him up. I said, you've got to get me on this show. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Brooklyn in and around a neighborhood that had a lot of guys like this. So I just completely understood this world, these guys, how they thought, how they talked. Right. I said, you've got to get me on this show. My second call was a guy named Frank Renzulli, who was one of the people who gave me my first job. Frank was a great writer who... Uh, Grew up in Boston in similar circumstances around mobsters. And I called him up and I said, do you know, have you seen this thing, The Sopranos? He said, yeah, I'm actually meeting with this David Chase guy on Friday. I said, you got to get me in there with you. So as it turned out, David had already hired his entire staff for season one. There's no more room for me. But I sat out season one as a fan and then talking to Frank Renzulli every day who got hired and actually rewriting in some circumstances Frank's stuff and giving. So I was kind of writing on the show, even though David didn't know it. And when season two came along, David had... You know cleaned house of of some of the writers in season one and said all right who's this guy terry winter and frank introduced me and i got hired and that was just life changing what was the writer's room like i mean it was great you know if if you were a fly on the wall in the writer's room you would swear we were not writing the show it was it was a bunch of people sitting around uh, first debating where are we going to get lunch where the hell is lunch when is it going to get here and then just talking and then just telling stories one time this happened one time that happened i had a dream once and even though it looked like we weren't talking about the show that's all we were talking about because all of this stuff was grist for the mill so i would tell a story about something that happened to me years ago and then two days later david would call me up and go what was that story and the thing happened you know and, mm-hmm. and that would find its way into the show i can't tell you how many moments from our lives were actual moments on the show uh when tony got hit in the head with the steak from annabelle's <laughs> your that was that was me in real life. Come on. I what? swear to God. Tell that story, I please. had a girlfriend in the <laughs> 80s, and uh, she kind of looked like Annabelle a little bit. And um, I um, ended a fight with her. She was making dinner, and I, I thought I was going to be cool. And I was like, Are you going to cook or what? And she said, Oh, are you hungry? And I went, Oh, man, that's not the response I thought I was going to get. And I started heading for the door, and she hurled a piece of London broil at me, like Sandy Koufax, from 30 feet away. <laughs> Whap! right in the back of the head and I got on the elevator of the apartment building and I had like blood dripping off of me juice and you know his family was like looking at me and uh, you know I was trying to be nonchalant like you know I always walk around like this and a month later we sat down to dinner and she said do you know what that is I, I said and she said that's the London broil I hit you with I picked it up and washed it and so she did it. in fact she cook yes yeah. <laughs> she did cook eventually but I was like that you know that's that's gonna end up. Wow. so so many of those moments and and in a lot of things that Boardwork Empire is saying things so many incidents in your life so the writer's room was a lot of things. Like, you know, David would even just throw out, like, what is the worst thing you've ever done to somebody in a relationship? I mean, what is the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to you? What are the things you're least proud of? Most, uh, you know, most ashamed of. You know, all of this stuff is grist for the mill, and it's all human, and hopefully it's all stuff we can relate to. And for me, that's the best kind of writing, the stuff that comes from people's
2: real.
1: And so um, how, 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 how far in advance, though, were were storylines and plot lines mapped out because you know for shows like The Sopranos, shows like Boardwalk, it shows that you do. Mm-hmm. Everybody, or, or Breaking Bad, for instance, which I know yeah. you have, you, that's not your your show, but I just, people see something in season four and go, oh, I remember something from season one. They're just laying the groundwork. Was that the way it was done Sometimes, the you
4: know, sometimes you, you know, well, a good good example from The Sopranos is, you know, when we got into season five, you know, we had always talked about this legendary mobster named Feech Lamana. Uh, and, and at the beginning of the show, I, at the beginning of the season, I said to the writer's assistant, have, have we ever said that Feech Lamana is alive or dead? And she came back in and she said, no, I went through all the scripts. We've just, just referenced them. So I, I said, well, what if Feech Lamana is getting out of jail and he's an old guy? Let's meet him. And we're like, great. So Robert Loggia, who you and I talked about yeah. before. Staten Island. Played, uh, played Feach Lamont, the legend. You know, who this, these guys idolized and got out of jail. And we got to meet him over the course of however many episodes he was on. But stuff like that where, you know, you go, oh, it looks like they were setting this up forever. Actually was an afterthought and we went back and retrofitted it and it worked perfectly. I love that.
1: I've got three episodes of yours that are, from The Sopranos I want to hit on. Um, let's start with um, season three, episode 11. You know what I'm talking about, uh, I'm sure, yes. just from that. The Pine <laughs> Barrens, um, which was directed by Steve Buscemi, Yes, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Who obviously wound up becoming Nucky Thompson yep. in yeah, so many yeah. other uh, and aspects. The, the, this is how Bordeaux I met Campfire. Steve, actually. That's I, how you
4: met him? I had been a huge fan of Steve as an actor I'd watched everything he'd ever done and, and and then, you know, watch the movies he directed. He directed Tree's Lounge and a few other things. And uh, it's interesting. People look at Pine Barrens and because it takes place in the snow, they go, oh, of course, I got Steve Buscemi because he's got this Fargo parallel, which is absolutely not true at all. The way it works is you hire your directors months and months in advance. Mm-hmm. You have a schedule and uh, slots and months earlier you go, okay, well, Tim Van Patten will direct this episode and Alan Coulter will direct that episode and, oh, Steve Buscemi going to direct whatever episode 11 ends up being. We didn't even know what it was going to be, you know, way in advance. So when I wrote Pine Barrens, originally it just took place in the, in the woods without snow. It was in the wintertime. It was just in the woods. Mm-hmm. And we scattered a location and Steve was directing and we broke for the holidays. I think it was like 99 into 2000. And we all left and said, all right, well, as long as it doesn't snow, we'll be fine. <laughs> and we <laughs> came back and it was a massive blizzard over the holidays. And we were like, what are we going to do now? We went to our location and it was just white as far as I could see. It was actually still snowing the day we started shooting the episode. Just the last few snowflakes were landing. And we said, all right, well, this is even better. I mean, it's even more dire. Uh, you know, and David Chase said, well, have they, have, they could just trace their footsteps back. How are they going to get lost? And I said, look, my sense of direction is so bad, I guarantee you I could get lost. Footsteps are no footsteps. They're getting lost. Uh-huh. So I did a quick rewrite to accommodate the snow, and it just elevated it, you know, by 30%, you know, the whole, the whole circumstance so they were in.
1: So what was the goal of that episode? And by that, I mean, because obviously... It's technically self-contained. We Mm -hmm. still don't know where Valerie is today. We don't know where the Russian is today, and I want to get to that in a second. But there's such a a character development element to Mm -hmm. this. I'm fascinated by how you came up with it what your goal from that episode well it, was. it
4: started it wasn't my idea tim van patten who was one of our directors on the show and went on to uh, executive produce and direct many boardwalk empire episodes happened to walk into the writer's office one day i was sitting there with todd kessler who was another writer mm-hmm. and uh, tim said what are you guys doing i said we're just kicking around ideas he said i i have an i had an idea for an episode but it's really stupid i said well, what is it he goes well it's a dream i had that paulie and christopher took a guy into the woods and uh, to kill him and they got lost I said, that's great. You got to go pitch it to David. He goes, no, nah, I'm embarrassed. I said, well, I'm going in there right now. Knocked on David's door. I said, Dave, you got to hear this idea. I pitched it to him. I said, he's great. Let's do it. But, you know, we can't do it in season two. If that was when he pitched it. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll do that in season three. So season three came along and I ended up writing it and uh it had another storyline with meadow and her uh jackie jr in college and tony getting hit with the steak uh, was part of that as well and uh you know really it was just you know it was (laughs) kind of like a departure you know that was a a season that also had the episode where melfi got raped which was the most dramatic episode we've done and then Mm -hmm. you know a couple episodes later is this farce basically these two guys at each other's throats under these you know for me that you know that's the best kind of comedy two guys in a pressure cooker you know, at each other is, mm-hmm. you know, for me, always, always great. It's having Costellos and three stooges. It's, you know, it, it's all that stuff. So, uh, you know, and it's interesting too. I mean, it's, you know, so much talk in the mob about loyalty and, you know, the merit. and these guys turn on each other at the drop of a hat, oh, sure. you know, like constantly, you know, and it, just uh, how quick, you know, they've only missed a meal or two when they are ready to kill each other. I
1: spent you know. the rest of the series wondering when the Russian was going to come back. Yeah, yeah, you uh, and a lot of other well, people. Well, I mean, because he, he, is. they shot him. It looked right. like he was dead, but they yeah. couldn't find him. Right. And we all I always thought, I, didn't you always think that he's just going to come back season four, season five, whatever, and then it'd be a big problem for everybody. I think we right? just
0: assumed being huge fans of the show and knowing yeah. how, like, kind of it works, like, oh, this guy's going to pop up up in season five somewhere right? Right. and there was
4: never a plan for that? There, there was never a plan, you know, and that's David's, you know, everything we did was, you know, the opposite of what you would expect. you know, for, for decades, we're trained by watching network TV that they're going to catch the murderer. It's going to be explained. Everything's wrapped up in a bow. And, you know, David used to say cynically and buy this soap. You know, that is the function of network TV <laughs> on on HBO is very often. We don't care if you buy anything because there's no commercials. And sometimes life doesn't work out the way. Sometimes you don't know what happened. And right. and that's, you know, arguably much more satisfying. So as the seasons progressed, I said to David, you know, wouldn't it be cool to just sort of what to answer that question? And I, I had him. I said, what if, you know, you know, they go to visit uh, Slava, the Russian uh, mob boss, and they walk in and there is Valerie sweeping the floor and he and Christopher lock eyes and Christopher, you know, is petrified and Valerie turns around and half the back of his head is literally <laughs> gone. And the guy's a ve- basically a vegetable, but he can't say anything. And, yeah. and, and that's all, we, you know, but that's, th- that's what happened. They obviously found him, rehabilitated him, et cetera. And Dave was on, on board with it for a nanosecond. And I made the critical mistake of saying the audience will love this. And he went, I'm not here to just make people laugh. I will still film it. Oh, you know, we can't. I'm not just doing like what the audience wants every time. And I was like, oh man, I should be So close. That. Yes. And then he's like, we're not doing it. And By the that way. Was
1: it. I would have loved that. That <laughs> would have been, would have, would have been you're, perfect. You're correct. The audience would have loved it They love would have. are in the audience. But
4: the most we gave them was there was a conversation at the bottom Bing, I think, where they just somebody said, somebody was reminiscing about the Russian and. Paulie said, or Christopher said, well, I think maybe he got eaten by squirrels or something. That's fantastic. I think not as much
1: closure closer as you'll get. Terrence Winter here on The Rich Eisen Show. We're going down some Sopranos memory lane with you. Uh, another episode I want to hit you with is Season 5, Episode 12. I think this is the greatest episode of The Sopranos, Long-Term Thank Parking. Thanks. where So you are... It was planned well in advance, I imagine, that Adriano was going to be her yeah. maker. And, and so... How did you come up with the method in which she finally, that, spoiler alert. You know,
4: yeah, it, I mean, it was, uh, we knew Sylvia was going to do it. Uh, it was really interesting for me, you know, going back af- after the fact and looking at how I had written that. Because I, I've written some of the most horrible violence on screen. I never shied away from showing it. You right. know, obviously on HBO, we, we had the... Uh, ability to really be graphic, and not, you know, not—I don't think we were gratuitous, but it, it got ugly. You right. know, I mean, I, especially you know, we felt it wanted, we needed to be ugly because these are not—we're not—you know—every once in a while, the audience would fall into the uh, notion that these guys were cuddly teddy bears, and then they would be reminded, yeah, they're not—they're horrible killers, they're horrible people. So when I wrote it, uh, I scripted it that you know, Silvio drags her out of the car, she crawls off camera, and he walks out of the frame, and you hear a gunshot. And the camera drifts into the sky. And that's exactly how Tim Van Patten shot it. And afterward, I thought, that is really weird. And I realized I did not want to see Adriana get killed. Neither did I. I didn't want to see it. I and was so I,
1: shocked. I was so dismayed. I like. Uh, I think my wife and I, we sat there in silence yeah, after that episode. It was really for
4: hard. It was really hard to write. Because I love Drea also. Right. And obviously that was her swan song, but I love the character. And I just did not want to see that happen. And then of course, you know, we, what ended up happening is, is kind of the Pine Barrens thing where people in the audience said, Oh, she's not really dead. She's going to come back. And he's like, no, she's dead. She's absolutely dead. We, we don't do that. You know, mm-hmm. that she, it's, yes. she's absolutely dead and that that's not how, but, but again, we're so programmed from, you know, being trained by TV or network TV to think like, Oh, there's, there's a reason they didn't show that. And it's actually, the real reason was just my own psychology i just
1: love the fact that you call it long-term parking too yeah, yeah. Or, or how uh, obviously we know that she's that's where she's deposited yeah in, in a in a car and it's parked and, yeah i don't know that no, that her was, car her yeah, has the been car parked car there we don't know where christopher leaves out right. there yeah, so yeah it i didn't could seem like she's 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 absconded and she's gone off to avoid the the feds yeah um but um it <sighs> I, I'm just, um, like, why why choose that as the name it of the- just I didn't choose it. I think, I, if
4: I'm remembering correctly, I think that was Robin Green, uh, one of our other uh, writers okay. who chose that. So I, I kind of inherited that title, but I was like, I couldn't have come up with anything nearly as good, certainly. It was just perfect. It just felt, you know, long-term parking is just, like, forever. It's, like, just sort of, you know, she's
1: she's parked wherever she's parked wherever so, you know, she is forever. Yeah. long so term perfect yeah. last episode as well um it's the first episode of the final season members only right and uh, i'm going to return to the subject that uh, everything um on the sopranos is planted and seeds are, are, are planted now this is the final season though and we all know That Tony, um, in the final scene, there's a guy in a members-only jacket. Mm -hmm. The first episode is called Members Only, right? And Uncle June, Uncle Junior, um, uh, shoots Tony in the first episode in some sort of moment where his mind is addled and he's Mm -hmm. he's he's not all there. Right? Is this a foreshadowing? Is the whole thing name shooting Tony, calling it Members Only, a total foreshadowing of the final episode?
4: (laughs) Sorry, to, sorry. Not at to, all, huh? No, not at all. Good theory. No. I mean, you know, the members-only jacket was just sort of a thing in New York. And it certainly is. Uh, guys of a certain age, like, still wear members-only jackets. Like, in the 80s, that was a big thing. So you got a lot of guys in that community that were wear members-only jackets. And mm-hmm. it, it just sort of became a thing. And then I, I don't know uh, exactly how I came up with that title, but it just seemed to fit uh and uh you know it's funny one of my memories of that episode and it's not uh has nothing to do with your question of course but shooting the scene where tony got shot uh jim gandolfini's first taken again this was brilliantly directed by tim van patten uh jim was writhing on the floor holding his stomach and he's trying to get to the telephone and uncle junior had run upstairs and scurried under the bed or wherever he was hiding and jim was just worked himself up into such a frenzy scrambling to try to get the the phone and he's coughing and spitting and holding his stomach and at one point he actually vomited and in real life in real life Uh in the on the first take and we it was this was after a minute and a half of writhing on the floor trying to get to the telephone and we had just cut tim had just yelled cut and jim puked and i turned to our camera operator billy coleman i said did you get that he went i just cut oh he didn't get it i was like oh it was so perfect i mean of course now You know, you could digitize stuff like that, but it was such a real moment. And Jim was so in the moment and so committed, he actually made himself vomit, you know, as if he had been shot in the stomach. And it was just so brilliant. And I, you know, I said, you got another one? And you (laughs) (laughs) could, I don't think so. I, I, you know, maybe come back tomorrow, but it's, I mean, it still worked brilliantly, but it was like, man, talk about watching a consummate actor. What was it like? Oh, he was amazing. He would, yeah, I mean, such an incredible guy, so generous, so sweet, nothing remotely like Tony Soprano at all. Actually, if you see the movie Enough Said uh, with Julie Louis Dreison, sure one is. of the last things he did, yes. that's the closest you'll see to the real Jim. That's that's who Jim was, you know, to me. And watching it was doubly sad because you feel like you're watching your friend Jim and such a sweetheart and just courageous, like, you know, this, I mean, I have acted, you know, a, a, I mean, call it that it, 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 to be able to stand in front of a group of people with cameras everywhere and forget yourself completely and, and behave in a certain way and, and, and do things that are horrible and ugly and, and just be in the moment is so hard. So it's funny when people say to me when they want to goof on actors and go, oh, what's my motivation? I go, you obviously have never tried to do this
1: before. Mm-hmm. It is
4: so hard. And to do it well, you get up to a Jim Galifini or an Edie Falco you know or a sly or a you know a volley, huh bobby yeah the best <laughs> and they make it look easy and it's the hardest thing in the
1: world mm-hmm. it really is so last one for you on this mm-hmm. uh you just said moments ago um how you were attuned to what the uh, you made it uh an aside about what you you told david chase previously on an idea that you had and he's like you know, you said that it, it would be great for the audience. The audience would love it. So clearly, you were tuned to what the audience of The Sopranos is all about, knowing how it was going to end before we mm-hmm. all saw it as an audience. Right. How did you feel the audience was like when you found out how it was going to end in the writers' room or however you yeah, did yeah, find yeah. out? How did you think the audience would take it?
4: I thought they would take it a lot better than they did. Honestly, <laughs> I thought it was really cool. I thought it was really interesting. But by that point, I guess I was I was programmed to try to look at storytelling the way David did, uh-huh. and I still do. Like, let's do something unexpected. Let's go the opposite way of what you think is going to happen. It's so hard to be ahead of the audience. It's so difficult. You know, again, all, most of us have been watching TV for decades. Cinema has been around for over 100 years. We we know all the tricks. You, you know... Instinctively, you know the language of film and you know if there's a, a shot of the coffee cup, the coffee cup's probably going to come back and mean something later. And so it's, it's, as a writer and a storyteller, you're always trying to find the different way in. So I think it was about a year before the finale ended. I think Matt Weiner and I were in the room and David came in and he said, I, I, I think I know how the series ends. And he says, I think I'm just going to cut to black. I went, wow, he goes. Yeah, I think I just I'm just going to stop it mid sentence. And then a month later, he came in. He said, "I, I just heard the song on the radio. That's going to be the Don't Stop Believing." He just heard it on the radio yep. and said, "That's the one." He said, "That's it." He said There's something about that song, and I said, "Wow, interesting." And he had it in his head. And then we we watched it, and I I watched, he pl- I sat in an editing room with him, and watched the ending of that show, fifty times. Uh huh. And he would change like one frame. and go, What do you think this one or that one? Like fine he's like, I honestly can't tell anymore. I don't know. They're all great. They all are. So I really was on board. And I, uh, I flew back. My son was just born. My wife and I flew back to New York, uh, at the, at the to, to introduce the baby to my family, my siblings and uh, aunts and uncles and everybody. And it happened to be the airing of the finale of The uh, Sopranos that night. We were all going to watch it together. And I said, You guys, you were, this is really cool. And it ended and they turned on me like a pack of wolves. What the hell was that? And I was like, oh, we gotta go. The baby's gotta go. And I just left. I was like, wow, I did not expect that. I, and then this uproar, yeah. you know, what the hell? And, and then, you know, I've asked people, I go, well, what did you want? Did you want to see Tony get killed in front of his family? No, of course not. Did you want to, the whole family gets, no, no. I said, well, what did you want? I don't know. And I go, all right, well, this was different, right? Maybe he died, maybe he didn't. I don't know, nobody knows. I, what I will say, and I have said a million times, is if he didn't die that night, one day somebody, members only jacket or something's going to come out of a bathroom somewhere. And then maybe it was that night. And I said, what I always took from that is when you're Tony Soprano, even going out to ice cream with your, with your family is fraught with looking over your shoulder. Yeah. Who's that guy? Why is that guy looking at me? That's the, that's what you've created for yourself. And that's sort of the point. And whether it was that night or
1: whether it never happened, I don't know. And, I'm glad we don't know. My wife and I had a whole bunch of people over. We got uh, <laughs> we got uh, you know chicken parm. We had the whole thing. We had uh, you know uh, 12, 15 people in the house. Show ends and everybody looks at me, yeah, yeah, yeah. thinking I forgot to pay the direct as TV of bill. Course. Like uh, they're like, yeah. "What did you know?" Like it, and it just happened <laughs> to go off right at this moment. Absolutely. And then five. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh. Uh, 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 by the way, as you know, it was the, the 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 dip to black was long enough for me to basically tell everybody, yeah, "Like, yeah. what are you looking at yeah, me for?" Like yeah, yeah. there was an exchange. Going on, and then yeah. the credits rolled, yeah, and then I was off the ground.
4: Yeah, yeah. Like, somebody told me they they were with the, it watching with their grandmother, and as soon as it went to black, the grandmother went, "I didn't touch the remote." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, but, but it just, was supposed yeah. to be longer, right? Terrence, didn't David Chase want like 30 seconds of He didn't of want credits at all. And the DGA, I think, or the DGA or the, the Writers Guild, or whoever it was, the, 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 the guilds would not allow it. They said, no, you have to have credits. Because he just wanted to go black, and that was it. That's it? And yeah, and
1: nothing. Coming up next, Sex in the City? Yeah, I mean, like, and what? that was it. And the they, hell? yeah, and so they, That was the was. only thing that at least let people know, oh yeah, it actually
4: is. Wow. Yeah, so he held it as long as he could.
1: So. Terrence Winter here on the Rich Eisen Show. Can I get you to stay for a little bit yeah, longer? Of course. Great, because I, sure. I do want to talk about Boardwalk Empire, Scorsese, Great. and then obviously a little more Absolutely. Tulsa King with you right here. Sure. Uh, Terrence Winter here on the Rich Eisen Show. Don't you dare move. So much for fun stuff coming up. Mm-hmm. Terrence Winter, um, let's get into Boardwalk Empire here. Um, Scorsese directed the pilot. Yeah, and was that? I'm just trying to know in my head. Was that before, after Wolf of Wall Street? Had you already worked together? That was right at
4: the same time.
1: I I literally wrote the
4: pilot for Boardwalk Empire and the script for Wolf of Wall Street within two months of each other. Jeez, it's just a weird, uh, weird coincidence. (laughs) Uh, I had just finished up on The Sopranos. Uh, I was on a deal at HBO, which means I was going to continue to work there and develop something. And I had a couple of ideas. And I was meeting with Carolyn Strauss, who was at the time the president of HBO. And we kicked around a few things. And she said, you know, I have this book. It's, it's kind of the history of Atlantic City. Yeah, it's called Boardwalk Empire. And I was like, you know, thinking to myself, oh, my God. You're going back How about in? a telephone book? You know, it sounded horribly boring.
1: Uh, oh, I see. And she
4: said, well, why don't you read it and see if you think there's a TV series in there? And I was like, okay. And, and literally on my way out the door, she goes, oh, and uh, Martin Scorsese's attached to that. And I turned around <laughs> and I said, I don't even have to read it. It's yes, a- there's a TV series in here and I'm going to find it. And I went on and I said to my wife, they just gave me a series. She said, what do you, what do you mean? I said, M- if Martin Scorsese is actually attached to this book and mm-hmm. I don't screw this up, mm-hmm. they're going to do it. So she will go figure it out. So I read the book. And for the most part, it, you know, it, again, it is the history of Atlantic City. Not a lot going on until you get to the Prohibition era. And there's this guy named Nucky Johnson, who I changed later to Nucky Thompson, mm-hmm. uh, who ran, he was a corrupt politician who ran Atlantic City on the uh, the seaboard during prohibition that's where all the alcohol came in from uh, across the sea mm-hmm. and he was friends with lucky luciano and Oliver rostein and al capone i was like this is the show that's the guy scorsese had never done anything in that era before so originally he was just supposed to produce it so i got a call i'm going to go meet martin scorsese and i'm going to pitch him on the ideas so i pitched them on, Pitched them he said great love it go write it i wrote the pilot i handed in the pilot Oh, and I think as I uh, handed it in, it was right around uh, the time I also just signed to do uh, Wolf of Wall Street, which I hadn't written yet either. Uh, but when I wrote the pilot for Boardwalk Empire, I handed it in to him and he called me up and he said, um, God, I really love this. He goes, uh, I, I think I might want to direct this. And oh my I God. almost right. fell out of my chair. <laughs> and he said, how do we uh, how do we move this forward? I said, I said, there's a guy named Richard Plepler at HBO. I said, yeah. you call Richard and tell him what you just told me. I'm pretty sure this is going to move forward pretty quickly. Yeah. And I hung up and five minutes later, I get a text from Richard, just all exclamation points. That's it. Nothing <laughs> else. Just like, holy crap, Martin Scorsese. So it wasn't, it was like the first day of shooting. I still didn't believe it was happening. I remember at 6 a.m. Tim Van Patten and I, Tim was the executive producer of Boardwalk Empire along with me, we're standing on the set and a car pulls up and Martin Scorsese, gets out and he goes, all right, let's rehearse. And we looked at each other and said, oh, this is actually, he's actually doing this. And then it was it was amazing. And we, we uh, you know, just to sit and watch him do it. And it was interesting that the, the process of building up to him shooting the show was, you know, the, the research. So we got to go to Martin Scorsese's screening room and sit and watch pretty much every gangster movie ever made along with Martin Scorsese. Get out of here. Commenting on the movie while we're watching oh. it. Literally just like punching each other in the leg, wow. like listening to him talk about... You know, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre or uh, the Al Capone movie with Rod Steiger and just, just uh, you know, all of these movies. On. It was like the most incredible experience ever. And then we start shooting and Marty's directing and he's, you know... you know he's incredibly collaborative too which is so great you know this is one of those things they go you know don't meet your idols yeah he is exactly and i say this about sly you can meet this guy he's so cool he's exactly what you hope he's going to be this funny new york guy and he's truly the reason i started doing this i saw taxi driver as a teenager and i walked out of that movie and i thought this is different than other movies why and i saw it probably 15 times over that summer Mm -hmm. and i said who's this martin Scorsese guy and why is this different And what else has he done and that was the thing that set me on the path to thinking about movies as something as other than to do on a Friday night. And so, so he's the guy, he's the reason I'm doing this. So we, we, we start shooting and he's off and he parks himself. He gets like in a curtain room. It's just him and the script supervisor and they're watching the film. So first day on set, Michael Pitt, who plays Jimmy Darmody is a young man in 1920. And he's supposed to walk into a room full of women with where Nucky is and, and tell Nucky something. And he's wearing a hat. So Michael walks in and he whispers to Nucky, and I realized he doesn't take his hat off. In 1920, if you walked into a room full of women, you take your hat off. Mm-hmm. So I watched another take, and he doesn't take his hat off. So I went up to the first assistant director and I said, um, I have a note for Marty. How do, how do I do this? And he said, I don't know. No one's ever given Marty a note. <laughs> and I went, Oh my God, of course. He's Martin Scorsese. What am I, crazy? I said, Well, this is kind of important. He goes, He's behind that curtain over there. And it's like, it's like Oz. So it was the longest walk of my life. I had to walk to the curtain and Knock on the door, really timid. And I said, like, Marty goes, what, What's the matter? I go, I'm so sorry to bother you. I just, have, I just noticed, like, Michael, you know, it's 1920. I he goes, Oh, you're right. Absolutely. Oh, Mar- Michael's got to take the Production assistant scrambling, Get the hat. Take the hat. Michael's got to take the hat. <laughs> Running all over the place. So, so he said, you, you see anything like that? Just just tell me. I said, like, Oh, great. Thanks. So during the course of the pilot, there's like maybe one or two other times where I knock on his door. I said, Marty, i noticed. And I think like the fourth time I knocked on the door and he like took his glasses and went, Yes. And I went, you know what? <laughs> Forget good. it. I'm good. I'm leaving. <laughs> and I went. And I went home. And I was like, you know, he he, probably, he knows what he's doing. So, but it was great. He's been. We've obviously worked together a couple of times. he finally did the pilot for that, and was my partner on that. Wolf of Wall Street. I did another uh, this little short film with him. So. He's, uh, he's, again, you know, one of my idols and the reason I do this, and it was just a dream come true.
1: I could literally talk to you for another hour. Unfortunately, our show's over in about a minute and a half. Um, I would love to have you back maybe yeah, when Tulsa course. King's at the end and, I, you know, we can have you know back. I have me. a I million it. more questions Absolutely. for you about what you've done and how your thought process sure. in it. And anybody who's just heard the last 40 minutes, obviously you have to watch Tulsa King because it is just up the alley of everything that we've just talked about new episodes of tulsa king drop weekly on sundays exclusively on paramount sylvester stallone at the top uh, along with andrea savage martin Starr, who is hilarious um and so many other talented actors and actresses um thank you for coming on
4: thank you my pleasure thanks for having me. so many
1: great stories man thank you i don't even know what to choose from and and you know Cannavale is one of our favorite human oh, he's beings too.
4: Just the best. He's the greatest. Isn't he?
1: Yep. I mean, yep. you know, if we had if we had more time, you said earlier that there are some things. So I'll just real quick some things from your real life that wound up in Boardwalk Empire. Uh, yeah, and yeah. None of them have to do with Jip Rossetti, right? None of it. Chip
4: G- Rossetti is actually based on a guy I know really well. Oh,
2: and
1: my I, God! And I explained, <laughs>
4: I, explained that guy to, I explained that guy to Bobby Cannavale, and I said, basically, i never used this line in the show, I said, this is a guy who could find an insult in a bouquet of roses. I told him about the guy, this is the, guy, this is the kind of guy who said, to you, I, you go, hey, you look good today. He goes, I didn't look good yesterday. What are you (laughs) saying? I was like, wait, before you know it, you're like back. And he says, I "I totally got it. And then Bobby came back and he was representing. He was like, that's the guy. That's the
1: guy. Terrence Winter here on the Rich Eisen Show.